Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, young Trish, when I'm feeling a little down... I like to watch on YouTube mm. a little clip of Starstruck, <laughs> yes. which is the telly thing on Saturday yes. night where three people mm-hmm. pretend to be like stars in your eyes. Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be. Three of them come out at the same time and they pretend to be someone else. That's now, right. Meatloaf, three pretending to be Meatloaf in three really bad weeks oh, is my yes. favourite. And it's it's guaranteed to make me laugh. Yes. And then I was thinking about your little tendency that you have. Oh, my to warbling. break into song, the oh, warbling. Right. And I was thinking, well, who would little Trish be? <laughs> and do you know who I came up with for you? For me? Who? Mm, Lulu. Lu- <laughs> little Lulu? Would I be doing the locomotion yes, as little you Lulu? you would be. Or oh, what's that one she sang? Light my that? fire. Uh, no, yeah. um, relight yes, my fire. Relight my fire. Could I have yeah. a take that backing band? Can you do a few bars of oh. relight my fire now? <laughs> no. Look on all you're you're in a bit of a grump shy. today, aren't I you? I am, I know. I need to watch some Starstruck. Who are you going to be? Well, you, I can't you... be Ed Sheeran because that was really funny. <laughs> that, that ginger wig. I don't know where they get these wigs. Pretty oh bad. Pretty I bad. need to think of someone funny for you. Oh, Let's quickly, yeah, quickly, quickly. Think of a very short person that can't sing, basically, because I've got no vocal range, no as vocal we know. Range. So I'd want to be Cher, but obviously that would oh, be Oh, that's ridiculous. not going to happen. The hair would be bigger than you, I think, wouldn't it? Oh, they wear magnificent yes. wigs. Magnificent big hair, wigs. big hair. Well, let's ask the listeners. They can yes. come up with... Who Ooh. should Lorraine be on yes. Starstruck? There we go. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Welcome back, listeners, to Season 8. And I'm going to start this week with a little something from my surprise new habit of journaling, Mm -hmm. Trish, uh, which I spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Gratitude. I'm pouring a gallon of gratitude this morning because our lovely listeners, after we asked them to, have left some amazing reviews of this season of the show on the iPhone podcast app. They're really, really lovely and they gave me such a little warm glow. So thank you, team, from the bottom of my heart. Oh, it's so lovely. That's uh, making me feel very thankful too. So thank you, everybody. And I told you, didn't I, the other day I was at an event and someone came and grabbed me and said, we love you and Lorraine. You are amazing. This show is amazing. Um, I laugh and learn. I think that sounds like a That's it. a BBC educational show. Laugh and learn with Lorraine and Trish. For the under fives. <laughs> <laughs> Or moan and groan with me, because I'm quite moany, groany today. Aren't you? Yeah, moaning groan with Marion and Millie. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but we're all learning as we go along, mm. so that was good to hear. And if you didn't laugh in midlife, I mean, goodness, it'd be quite overwhelming at times, wouldn't it? Well, it would. Um, the listeners who reviewed us, they wrote that the show was honest, uplifting, positive, realistic and hopeful, which is a way to describe you, my little friend, isn't it? Maybe not today, because you're slightly grumpy no, today. No, but, but yeah. maybe, maybe Lulu. <laughs> Generally, you are Lulu. Starstruck Lulu could be, couldn't it? I may be feeling a little bit grumpy, didn't Mm. sleep very well last night, but I'm feeling very excited about today's show because it's our Postcards from Midlife Book Club. Um, We do one book club, don't we, each season because, I mean, we're obsessed with books. We read a lot of books and we know how important books are to you um, as well. Mm. We've got quite a few new ones to unveil as well as some golden oldies lined up to discuss. We've had a book 
themed week, book-filled week, haven't we? We have. Well, it'll be a little bit more of that later. It's been a very booky week. Um, mm. But I've got a couple of new entries in the brain fog charts for you, Trish, which um, I thought we should <laughs> get get in. So Susan, on our lovely private Facebook group, put up a picture of her cute little canine. There was something different about his lead. She had attached the iPhone headphone cable <laughs> to his lead and attached the little lead, it's quite a small dog, to her mobile phone (laughs) and someone else had posted a picture of a teacup in her larder because she'd put it down mid-sip and then forgotten where it was do you think it was all mouldy on top like when we find them in the teenagers rooms yes exactly yeah do you know what i did yesterday you know we were in town for a very important meeting it was a bit zhuzhy yeah up west it was a bit zhuzhy anyway when i went to get on the tube it was freezing and snowing and i went through the gates and um you know put my ticket through and went through the gates couldn't find one of my gloves and i panicked i thought i can't lose one of my leather gloves i had one i was holding one of them couldn't find the other one so went back out through the gates asked the london underground guy guess where it was oh don't say you were wearing it on my hand (laughs) oh you're joking it's on my hand that's worse than me, Trish. Oh, it was not good. Christ. It was not good. But um, mm. yes, anyway, so that's my blooper of the week. But we've had some other good things on the Facebook group, practical things, inventive ways that women are coming up to spread their HRT gel on the oh, body. Oh, I love this This is a good one, isn't it? Because it's they're using the lid, that sort of bluey green lid, mm. uh, to smear it on, uh, a makeup spatula thing. I think because they're concerned about if you rinse it off, it's going to get into the water. Yeah. Now, you see, I wanted to ask you about this because my doctor told me, oh, just rub it into your hands. Just just let it rub yeah. in and dry in. So we don't need to wash it off. Or do we need to wash it off? I don't know. Well, as became evident, it's the routine that each of us have mm. in the morning. Because one lady was saying while it's drying, it gives her time to floss her teeth. And she doesn't normally floss her teeth. So it's added in some flossing time. Oh, very good. I always put my moisturizer on. After I've done the HRT. So I worry that I'm... You're getting it on your face. Rubbing it all over my face. Probably why you look so fresh and lovely. All that extra estrogen. No, that's the Zoom filter. Oh, yeah. Isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) these midlife women, do you know what they've got? They've got what my teens are calling smarts with a Z and skills. Yeah, love it. Now, someone else who has got some smarts is our guest today. We are excited about this for the book club. It's the best-selling author, Jane Fallon who says that she woke up one day, age 45, with a brand new, much braver mindset, decided to ditch her two-decade career and become a novelist. Yes, she had quite an epiphany, right in midway through her perimenopause, in fact, and she decided to follow her gut instinct, which turned out to be the right move, as she's written 12 Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. Very jealous. (laughs) You'll get there, don't worry. But we're going to be finding out how she had the courage to make that change, as well as chatting about how she navigates the two sides of her life, from appearing on the red carpet with her partner, Ricky Gervais, to her domestic life in the shadow of her increasingly famous cat, Pickles. I said the cat word. Oh my God, the dreaded cat. You know what would happen if my nemesis, the podcat Margot, lived in Australia, don't you? She would have to have a catio. Do you know about catios, Trish? No, what on earth? What's a catio? Been on all the news. So in Australia, cats are seen as the evil beings that they are, that I feel that they are. They're labelled mass predators, alpha killers, Mm. and people are having to curfew them at night because they're killing everything when they go out in Australia, even the giant pygmy pig-sized spiders that they've got out there. People are being advised to have closed-in areas, (laughs) and they're calling them catios. Like that, yes. What, what would Margot's catio be like? Well, I think she would have. It would be very obviously very elegant and, and probably uh, cashmere lined. I mm. would think yes. But I think enough of your feline feuding. Let's head off to the postcards from Midlife Book Club. So we're going to go from killer cats to cuddly canines. Welcome to the Postcards from Midlife Book Club. Now, this week, Trish and I had an office outing. My mm-hmm. work colleague, my only colleague, and I had an office outing. We went on a bus. Yes. Didn't we, Trish? And we headed to my neck of the woods to Ink at 84 Bookshop in Highbury in Islington, where we met the lovely book-loving team there. And we also met a little dog, didn't we? A gorgeous dog called Thor. Quite a big fluffy sheep dog, Thor, it's wasn't huge. he? He was very nice, a bookish dog. But um, yes, we went to your neck of 
the woods in North London because Ink at 84 are official book partners, aren't they, for the festival. Postcards from Midlife Live on 19th and 20th of May this year. Uh, so many of our brilliant speakers and celebrity guests have books coming out this spring and they're going to be doing lovely sort of one-to-one boutique kind of book signings in our special Midlife Bookshop with Ink at 84. And it's all happening at the Business Design Centre in Islington. I'm very excited about it because it was kind of the dream day out for us wasn't Ooh, yes. it because that's our alternative reality running a little bookshop on our own isn't it running a bookshop <laughs> you'd love it uh it was very very exciting i mean those independent bookshops have got really great little communities mm. around them as well and lots of people popped in and out while we were there so ink at 84 which is why we really wanted to work with them and we love the ethos so much was set up in 2015 by artist tessa shaw and author betsy tobin And they call the little shop, and it's got a great cafe, hasn't it, as well, and some lovely little greeting cards. They call this shop their love child, which I thought was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with it before I even set foot in it, because um, on their website, inkat84bookshop.co.uk, they have the dogs of Ink at 84, and they're all pictured. It's really lovely. dogs, very important. And we did uh, a lot of stroking of Thor the big old sheepdog who popped in. And uh, we had a lovely chat with Emily, who manages was managing the store that day. And we had a good old rummage, didn't we, through the new yeah. hardbacks to confirm our recommendations for today's book club. So do you want to kick off the top tips of the day? Yes, I do. So we get a couple of exclusives, don't we? The book people come to us. And I have in my hands a book that's uh, on pre-order, but I think it's it'll be out by the time this programme comes out. It's called... The Definitive Guide to the Perimenopause and Menopause by Dr. Louise Newsom. And we had Dr. Louise on in season one of this podcast. We're on season eight now. And I think she probably could be credited as the medic who kicked off the revolution around the menopause. It's encyclopedic. It's got everything in it, absolutely everything. Now, if you want to meet Louise, lovely listeners, and she has... I think over 10,000 people on her waiting list. So it's quite mm-hmm. extraordinary. Um, and she obviously she's on telly a lot as well. If you want to meet her, she will be at the show signing books and we will be interviewing her on stage and the balance team will be there, which is her app, which helps women in midlife. Now, also, I just want to mention another book, Fearless, Adventures with Extraordinary Women by Louise Minchin, who is also coming. Two Louises. I know, they're going to be there Hmm. being interviewed and being fabulous. Now, Louise's book is about the adventures of courageous women. It's really inspiring because it tells these kind of extraordinary stories. There's the teen sisters who swam with the sharks in Alcatraz, the 60-year-old grandma who cycled across Argentina. It's all about breaking down the barriers as you age and having adventures, which we all like. So Louise is going to be at the show on the Friday and the Saturday, isn't she, Uh, Dr. Louise? And uh, Louise Minchin will be on the Friday talking about these adventures. Now, I think we should go on to fiction. Yes. Because, Trish, your first book made the Women's Prize of Fiction long list, didn't it? It did. Uh, You have been talking to me about this book for ages. (laughs) Banging I on. haven't read it. You haven't read it yet. It's had amazing reviews. Tell me about Demon Copperhead. Yes, well, I think just because it all connects, I think we should mention that lovely Louise Minchin was the chair of the Women's Prize she of Fiction. Was, yes. It's all joining up, all yes. coincidentally joining up. So this is the latest book by the American writer Barbara Kingsolver. I mean, she is just a legend to me. And she wrote one of my all-time favourite books called The Poisonwood Bible. Do you remember that? It's the tale of a missionary family in the Congo. Absolutely loved it. And she's from rural Kentucky. And this novel is a retelling of Charles Dickens' David Copperfield updated to modern day America. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It sounds amazing. How you could even conceive to do that, but she does it brilliantly and she updates all the key characters like the Macorbers and Uriah Heap into another poor setting, which is this very poor rural place called Lee County. Obviously, both are critiques of institutional poverty and the effects that that has on children and orphan children, particularly in social services. And I think whether or not you've read David Copperfield, have you read David Copperfield? Do you remember the story? I have read it and I did see the film, which was so, so brilliant. Yeah. I think you'll enjoy it whether you've read it or not. Mm. I think if you haven't read it, you'll just think what an amazing story. And if you have read it, you'll just be amazed at how she's kind of made the characters and the storylines work. But of course, rather than it being 
you know, somebody running off with a man is the big scandalous, awful thing. We've got kind of drug addiction, overdoses, all the kind of modern day American sort of malaises. It's just brilliant. And she is from that area. So I think it's very authentic for her to be writing that. So that that made it onto the Women's Prize for Fiction. It did, 16 books. Yeah, it was one of them. And I'm not surprised at all. And the paperback for that is out in May. But before we get into any further dealings with other people's books, I do feel like we should mention your book. (laughs) And you're not just making me do that. Are you Lulu? Do you remember that in Ab Fab? Lulu. Yes, Lulu. Lulu. (laughs) Anyway, your book, Enough of This, that's out in May as well, isn't it? Do you want to just tell us a little bit about it? It is out in May. Uh, We mention these books now as well because pre-order really makes a difference between who stocks your book and who doesn't. So the pre-order numbers are really important for authors, which is why we mention it. My book is called What's Wrong With Me? Ba-ba-ba, look. 101 Things Midlife Women Need to Know. And it's really the emotional side of midlife. So it's it's not so much menopause and perimenopause, but it's that unravelling, Trish, that we all went through. It's that deep sense of I'm going mad. What the hell is wrong with me? I must. This must be me on my own and it's not affecting anybody else. But I've talked to loads of experts uh, in the book about how to navigate it, how to come out the other side and have a magnificent midlife. And also I've talked to quite a lot of lovely women on our Facebook group. Mm-hmm. So... I want to thank them for their, um, they're all anonymously in there. Done a little thank you for you as well. I know, I'm blushing. It's very sweet. Very sweet, yeah. Anyway, what's wrong with me is coming out because I felt that, you know, we're getting lots of information medically and we're getting lots of kind of menopause, perimenopause chats, but we're not getting emotionally how you deal with this, what they call the liminal space, the void between one stage of life and the next stage of life. So it's all in there. It's really personal. So I'm slightly concerned about that. Oh, right. Okay. It is what it is, Trish. It is what it, it is. It's out there now, isn't a it? triumph. It's yes. going to be a triumph without a, triumph. a doubt. Yes. And everybody will be buying it. So well done you. Thank you very much. What is your next fiction hot tip? Okay, well, this one is uh, from our bookshop visit that we've just been talking about because we did get chatting to a young woman in there called Hayley who came in. That's what I loved about these small bookshops. She just talked to people and make friends. It's fabulous. And um, she was looking for a suggestion. So, of course, I said, you've got to read Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, which I think she then bought that. And then she suggested for me, a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Yes. Something I would never normally pick up, but I am absolutely in love with it. And the reason I wouldn't ever think about picking it up is, is because it's about gaming. Gaming. <laughs> gaming. Gaming. You know, I'm look, I'm doing the thumbs here, look, like, <laughs> like our kids on their little, whatever they are, Nintendos and things. <laughs> are you not a Grand Theft Auto fan then, Trish? Is that not your spare time hobby? Look, funnily enough, it's not my thing at all no so um not interested sonic the hedgehog well no exactly um, again mario. you see it super no mario. super mario well the story starts with all of that and it's about these two kids who become friends because they have to spend a lot of time in hospital it's like late 80s in america and they bond over playing sort of super mario and then it kind of moves forwards to they meet again at harvard where they're both studying computer programming and they get together to kind of create their own game and It's kind of a funny one to explain because I adore the characters. The writing is just beautiful. It's so easy to read, very lyrical, and it cleverly weaves through the different points in their lives, but totally demystifies gaming. And I finally understand why people really love it so much. Why? Why do they love it? Explain me. Well, because it sort of takes them off into these other worlds where they can be who they want to be and they can begin over and over and over again, hence the title of the book. Mm. Quick test, quick quiz, can't go through an episode without one, Lorraine. Where's that quote from? Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Is it? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> it's Macbeth. It's Macbeth. Oh, is it Macbeth? I don't know. I left school at 16. You did, exactly. That's Macbeth. fine. Sorry, wasn't meaning Lay to. Lay on Macduff, uh, but anyway. that's all I know. Well done. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, so she sort of said, actually, Gabrielle Zevin said in an interview, she said, I think the idea of the gamer, like the capital G gamer, this kind of misogynist mm. dude shouting insults at women is antiquated and not true. And I think she's right. And this book makes you reevaluate everything you think you knew about gaming, whether you're into it or not. And as I say, you can read it whether you're interested or not in gaming. And I absolutely adore it. I'm in the middle of it at the moment. So that's my 
that's my number two, recommended by Haley. Thank you. Right, you next. What's next? Got in my little sticky little mitts, not quite out yet, oh. will be soon. It's 50 years of Virago Press oh, this yes. year, which is kind of amazing that Virago even got started and carried on and just kept, you know, hearing the voice of women at a mm-hmm. time when, you know, women writers just were ignored. So Virago, amazing. So to celebrate, they commissioned a series of writers to write the stories of the wicked, wild and untamed. And the book Ooh. is called Furies. And it's got Margaret Atwood, Susie Boyt, Camilla Shamsey. Oh, it's just such a brilliant, brilliant list. Emma Donohoe. It's just Ali Smith, Linda Grant, mm. Stella Duffy. It's a brilliant list of short stories written by women. And they were each given a word that they had to uh, write about. And obviously the writing styles are so different and they're so lovely. I was completely, I mean, there's a graphic um, short story as well from a graphic novel, a drawn one, which is brilliant. But I was reading the Camilla Shamsey one. Do you know, Trish, what a churail is? I do not. I'm trying to think how you would spell that. It's C-H-U-R-A-I-L-E. Is that the word she was given then? That's the word she was given. Oh my gosh, right. And she is a woman. It's a spirit. It's a spirit of a woman who died in childbirth. And she sings from trees to people. Oh, I like that. So, yes. But it's also... A churro can also mean a woman who died unsatisfied sexually. Oh, okay. <laughs> For me, it's a really amazing mm-hmm. story about what that means. And it's about um, set in Pakistan, starts in Pakistan and then uh, moves to London. Uh, I won't spoil it because the churro comes to London to haunt Ooh. the dad who is left to look after the daughter um, that she gave birth to in childbirth. And obviously he's horrendously disappointed with this daughter. So it's re- really brilliant. Oh. The whole, the, Margaret Atwood's, story is great as well. I mean, it's really, really good. And it is supporting women writers. Um, as you know, I was a judge for the Women's Prize yes. of Fiction last year as well. So very, very good furies. I um, think celebrating gift for a friend, birthday. birthday gift for a female friend. Super gift, super gift. Super it's an amazing gift. cover. I love mm-hmm. it as well. What have you got now next for me? Okay, well, I've got bizarrely another Macbeth reference. <laughs> This is, I know, I don't know what's going on. Dickens, Macbeth. Dickens, Macbeth and Macbeth again. This is Burnham Wood. Burnham or Elsinane or something. What's the quote? Yes, till Burnham Wood doth come to Dunce or whatever. Yes, it's the big sort of climax, isn't it, of the uh, play where it all goes wrong for Macbeth. My hands, (laughs) Out damn spot. Right, (laughs) enough. So this is Eleanor Catton, who I'm sure everybody will know from her book, The Luminaries, which was out in 2013. Yes. An incredible book. Won the Booker. She was the youngest winner of the Booker in history. A massive, big 821 pages, all about the kind of gold fields of 1860s New Zealand. Made it into a TV show. Didn't love that as much. Never mind. Right, we digress. So I haven't actually read this yet, so it's on my list. So I was just going to quickly mention it because um, it's a political and psychological thriller. It's got climate change, it's got all of these things. So I think it's going to give my brain a good workout. Good for your memory. Yes, good for my memory. And um, I think uh, that is next. Great. That is on my bedside table, ready for when I finish tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Right. Um, I've got a little history for you going back in so we are both from the world of fashion and i met the writer kate strasden recently went to her book launch um she is a dress historian at falmouth university college amazing lovely so her book the dress diary of mrs anne sykes is just extraordinary it's what i would call so charming and beautiful it's a forensic exploration of the history of fashion but it also tells the story um it's a 200 year old diary uh, made of fabric basically so it tells the story of Anne Sykes from the day she got married in 1883 it's just really really beautiful it's a mystery um as well so this this book it's a huge um kind of i suppose it was a i suppose you call it like like a scrapbook really but uh-huh. it's fabric from all of the areas of her life and she went to live abroad and came back and all of her friends as well because in the 1880s you couldn't just go into a shop and buy a dress you ca- you had to commission a dress and that was also a time when women were doing these collecting things. There was that very famous woman who made paper flowers and she made all of them. They were really tiny detailed replicas of flowers and that's been used 
um, to study the flowers over the years and, and the changing nature of them. So women were doing this all over the place. They were, they were making collections of things. So in the 60s, it was on a market stall in Camden. And a, a young guy who worked at a theatre thought, oh, I know the theatre director, the clothing lady at the theatre, the dresser in wardrobe. She might like this. She might like that, So yeah. he took it to, the, to her theatre in London, gave it to her, and she just kept it. Um, and then she met Kate by accident and said, oh, you're a dresser. So I've got this thing at home. It's, I think it's about 200 years old. Would you like it? So what Kate's done is, is taken every piece of fabric and traced it back to where it's from. Oh, my goodness. That is incredible. Yes. And told the story of all the kind of... And you just think of them... And these women and the friends, they would have to travel to get fabric that they wanted. So they lived in... When they were in London, they, her and her friends, um, Anne Sykes and her friends, would go up to Liverpool and Manchester and places as mm -hmm. well to get their fabric. So it's a kind of... It's just an extraordinary telling yes. of a woman's life through her clothing. And there's this really lovely sentence that says, um, Through small and seemingly inconsequential wisps of fabric, Anne Sykes' diary lays bare the whole of human experience in what is the most intimate of mediums, the clothes that we choose to wear every day. And, I, you know, I'm always saying to people it's really important <laughs> when fashion and what women choose mm. to wear and what we all choose to wear. And it's got men's clothes as well in the diary because mm -hmm. you know, her husband had all his clothes made. I just thought it was a really unique and unusual book. I'd yes. never really come across anything. And also she writes it like a mystery. Mm -hmm. So you get led along with little clues oh, of things. And the brilliant. style is lovely. So yes, Excellent. I'm going to give it to you when I finish, Trish, because I think it's right up your straza. Oh, thank you. I would love to borrow that. Thank you very much. So you've gone back in time. I I've also just want to quickly mention going back in time because I've got a real thing as well. I've been doing this for a couple of years where I try and revisit, well, not revisit, visit famous female authors that I've never got around to reading. And now Edith Wharton. I mean, can you believe I've never, never read an Edith Wharton book until now? Obviously, I've seen Age of Innocence, that Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis, but um, decided to actually read one of her books. And I started with one called Summer. And oh, my goodness, blew me away, blew me away. So now I've got a whole list of, I said it, I told my sister about it. She's like, oh, I'm so jealous. You've got all of those books to read. What a thrill. So that's where I'm kind of revisiting and going back. Do you ever do that? Yes, I've gone back 20 years to a Maggie O'Farrell that I've never oh, read. Yes. 2004, okay. The Distance Between Us, which is sort of a it's like a, a mystery plot set between Hong Kong and Scotland because um, mm -hmm. the marriage portrait is on the Women's Prize along uh, this Maggie's book. So, but the distance between us is just a really good story. Um, and while we're talking of books, I thought I would just sneak in two last ones for the reading clubs planning ahead. Sadie Smith has just released the cover of The Fraud, which is mm -hmm. her new book, which she hasn't done a book for ages, out in September. And Cathy Rensenbrink has written a really beautiful book, How to Feel Better. And she's filled it with stories of women, little tactics they use to feel happy. And that's out in early April. So I think we've given everyone a massive, brilliant reading list, haven't we? There's a lot. Keep you busy, girls. Keep you busy. And let us know as well on the Facebook group. We'll put all these details on the Facebook group, but let us know what you're reading as well, especially the back in time ones. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game-changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah. 
Joining us this week for our book club special is the Sunday Times bestselling author, Jane Fallon, whose whip-smart, laugh-out-loud novels explore themes of revenge, betrayal, toxic friendships and the fallout of imploding marriages. Jane began her career in TV, becoming an award-winning producer of shows including EastEnders, Teachers and This Life. But it was at the age of 45 that she says she finally felt brave enough to jack it all in and give novel writing a go, something she had longed to do since childhood. Now age 62, Jane lives in London with her partner, the comedian and actor Ricky Gervais, who she met at University College London back in 1982. Their 40-year relationship is considered one of the strongest and closest in show business, and they have both spoken openly in the past about their decision not to have children. She is a woman after our own heart, with comments like this on Instagram. She says, The best thing about getting dressed up and going to an awards do is eating Marmite and peanut butter on toast in your PJs afterwards. She joins us today to talk about her midlife lessons, as well as to tell us about her 12th novel, Just Got Real, which explores the murky world of online dating. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Jane. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. And uh, congratulations on the success of Just Got Real. You are in the top five of the Amazon charts with a book about a 49-year-old divorce woman in midlife who's back on the dating scene. I mean, these are stories we don't really see anywhere, do we? We don't hear them anywhere, unfortunately. Tell us why you wanted to write this particular story now and why do you think it's resonated so much? I think the thing that got me thinking about it was actually that I was hearing those stories because suddenly a lot of my friends who'd been in long-term relationships, they'd ended and the world's such a different place. You know, if you're our age and you're going to start dating again, it's such a different place from how it used to be. And so they were all doing online dating. So I was absolutely fascinated and they would tell me all these, you know, some funny, some just horrendous stories about what was going on. And with my books, I always like to try and put myself in the position of the heroine and just think, how would I feel? What would I do? And I was just thinking about how terrifying that would be to put yourself out there like that when you're old. You know, it's one thing, I think, when you're maybe 26, 27, 28 or 35 or wherever, and you're really in your most physically confident. But I think it's tricky when you get older, you know, especially if you haven't dated for a long time. So yeah, I just thought it was very relevant because so many people seem to be doing it. But also I thought it was kind of an area that I could mine because there there were just so many, not even pitfalls, like a lot of them had a nice time. I don't know anyone that's had an absolute love story. A lot of them had a nice time, met some nice friends, but they were kind of like, well, I don't really need any more friends. I want enough friends. And a lot of them just had so, just months and months and months of time wasted. I just thought it was fascinating. And your heroine is is Joni. Um, and because this is our book club special, we'd love you to read out a short passage, if you would, in which you might want to just give a little synopsis, but she's about to go on this first date, isn't she? She is. So Joni has been persuaded by her teenage daughter who's just left home to try online dating. She's recently divorced. She goes into it very reluctantly. Because she is, she's you know coming up for 50, she hasn't dated in years, and she's has insecurities. And her daughter says, well, everyone kind of, you know, they're all their photos are all a bit younger than they really are, or a bit more hair or a bit less weight or whatever. So she panics and she decides to use her sister's photo. And she meets this guy called Ant online and they get on really well. And they take it to text and then they take it to talking on the phone. And then he says he wants to meet her. And obviously she's terrified because she doesn't look anything like her photo. But she assumes that he will look like something entirely different as well which is where the passage comes in. And then I'll tell you afterwards a bit more about kind of where that goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is where she's arrived at the cafe where they've arranged to meet. She scours the other tables just to make sure she hasn't missed Ant. There's only one man sitting on his own. God, she hopes that slightly seedy looking bloke with a greasy mullet isn't the person she had phone sex with last night. She feels a wave of both arousal and embarrassment. She doesn't know how they ended up there on their third phone call. How discussing the arrangements for meeting for the first time segued into uncensored lust but it was both shocking and thrilling. What had she been thinking? She's a 49-year-old divorcee who hasn't had actual sex for over four years, let alone simulated it over the phone, ever, with a virtual stranger. Except that was the thing about Ant. He didn't feel like a stranger, not at all. She watches as Mullet Man is greeted by a smiling woman. There's someone for everyone, Emma had said to her as part of her online dating sales pitch. That one perfect person. Emma had always been a romantic, despite also being wise beyond her years. And maybe it was true, although it seemed a bit random. What if you never came across that someone? And even if you did, how would you know that in a world of 7 billion people, that bloke you said hello to every week in your local Tesco's was the one? It made no sense. Joan had always been much more pragmatic. 
there would probably be thousands of people around the globe you could comfortably match with, tens of thousands even. It was just a question of settling for one who was reasonably local and nice. She knows that nice is a damning word, too vanilla, too beige. But the truth is, it's what she wants. She's done with arseholes. <laughs> Telling it like it is, Jane. <laughs> so very briefly, she he appears and he, in fact, looks exactly like his photo. He is the man in his photo. And so she bottles out. She thinks, I can't go and present myself as this um, woman who's older and very different looking. But then afterwards, she thinks, well, they've got on really well on the phone. And so she contrives to meet him in real life with him not knowing who she is. And eventually we come to discover that he's the fo- his photo is the only real thing about him. Everything else that he's told her is a lie. Quite a treat having an author read, big author like you read from a book. So thank you oh, thank very you. much thank for you. that. It's lovely. Um, so you are a bit of the, I suppose you would call you the queen of the revenge comedy. Well, you have been called that. And yeah. What we like is this idea of exploring the dark side, which I think midlife women are quite good at. Where do your dark side inspirations come from? Because you're from a big family, aren't you? You've got, <laughs> you've got what three sisters and, and a brother? brother yeah. You, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got four kids. That's five, isn't it? But where does all that darkness come from? The plot lines. Oh, I think it comes from two places. I think it comes from being very introverted when I grew up. So even though I came from a big family, we were very, very spread out in years. So when I was six, for example, my older sister was 20. So it's not like we were all kind of a big gang. So I spent a lot of time on my own and I was a very introverted child. I made the mistake. The youngest, Jane. I was the youngest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've the loved one. Yeah, I'm the baby. (laughs) I've said to people before that I'm shy and I've realized I shouldn't say that I was shy because then people think I was kind of a sweet little naive thing. And I wasn't, I was like an angry little introvert. Um, (laughs) So I think that's where, so I spent a lot of time in my own head and a lot of time reading. And I think if you spend a lot of time in your own head, you, you mine all of the dark stuff in there. So I think it's partly that. And also, I just think that's where the fun is, isn't it? We all have dark urges, if you like, you know, the revenge thing I think is an urge that we all have from time to time, really unhealthy, really not a good thing to act on. But we all understand that desire to get your own back on someone. And so I just like the idea of taking people to places they wouldn't normally go and seeing what that does to them. Mm-hmm. Are you a very close family now? Are you all in and out uh, of each other's lives? No, I'm we're ask, not. The... asking for a friend, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> we're, um, we're not the sort of family that live on top of each other. We never have been. So we all get on really well. I'm very close to my sister, Claire, who's the next one up. But we're all, we all live, we're geographically very spread out. They've all got families and kids and my lovely nieces and nephews and stuff. But no, we're not kind of on top of each other. We're in a lot of contact, but we don't see each other all the time. Do you eat really fast when you're all together? Mine eat so fast in case someone else takes their food. <laughs> Isn't that funny? My family are the slowest eaters in the world. It drives me mad. Sometimes when I'm eating with my sister, I'm like, oh my God, I fin- I could be eating three courses and she's still like really <laughs> doing it really healthily like you're supposed to. I'm just like a Labrador. I'm just like... <laughs> Now, talking of the darker side of human nature and of jealousy, we're, we're feeling a bit jealous because you've had not one but two incredibly yeah. successful careers. Um, you've already excelled at being a TV producer. So can we take you back to those days? Because you were behind one of what we think is the most seminal Gen X shows, This Life. I mean, it. it was incredible. If anybody hasn't seen it, go watch. It's brilliant. There were about two series, I think, weren't there? there were two, so yeah. tell us about that. How was that? Oh, it was incredible, actually. And do you know what? I was so lucky. The timing was so lucky. I was working at EastEnders and I was the script series storyline editor. So I was like dealing with the storylines and stuff like that. And then I was made producer and I was producer on EastEnders for a year. But producing on a soap is like being a baby producer because there are so many of you and everything's all in place already. It's like a big old machine that would almost run itself if you fell over and died. So it's a really good learning curve, but you come out there and you're not, you know, you're not the most qualified person in the world. And usually what people do after that is they will go and then work on another maybe an hour long show that already exists and, you know, like a casualty or Holby or something like that. But I had this real bee in my bonnet that I wanted to go and do a new thing. I didn't want to go to another existing show and so much braver when I was younger. Tony Garnett, the TV producer was my hero. He'd done things like um, Kathy Come Home that I remembered from when I was a kid practically and Cares and all that kind of thing. And he'd just done Cardiac Arrest, which was an amazing series. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to write to him. Like, what's the worst that can happen? When I knew I was leaving, I'd given him my notice. And so I sent him some ideas that I had for a series. And he came back and said, uh, come and have a meeting. So I went in to meet him. We got on like a house on fire. He was the nicest man. 
and ultimately wasn't up for any of my ideas. But he said, I've got this show that BBC Two want me to make. I've been developing it with Amy Jenkins, this uh, writer. And he said, it's about young people. And I'm too, he was like, I'm too old to really be involved. He said, I want a young team and I want a young producer to take it on and run with it and just kind of do whatever you want with it. Do you want to come and do it? And I was like, <laughs> it was just an unbelievable opportunity. I mean, I mean, unbelievable that someone would say that to you and would then say, do whatever you want with it. I trust you 100%. I'm here if you need me, which you always was. All you have to do before you sign any casting things is just tell me who you've chosen, just in case I want to veto anyone, which you never did. Jack Davenport, Andrew Lincoln, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, all of those. All amazing people, amazing mm. cast. Amazing. And we had such fun casting because I really wanted unknowns. I thought, especially because they had to be young, and I thought I didn't want to just get a load of people that we'd seen before. I wanted to believe that this was a real little group of friends. Di Carlin, the casting director, who was brilliant, just found all of these people who were, you know, fresh out of drama school or had been kicking around a couple of years and not really done much and... We spent weeks and weeks and weeks trying to find those people and then bringing them in in combinations. Did you have that tingly feeling that this was going to be a seminal? There isn't a woman of our age, I don't think, who hasn't watched it and didn't love those characters and just feel like they were part of it. And also we would look forward to it because of the gap between the shows. Yeah, the gap between the shows. Where's that gone? No, I think I was really proud of what we were doing. I can't. There was a sort of anarchy to it almost that I loved. The BBC kind of left us alone because we cost absolutely nothing. Like we were the lowest budget thing. And so we couldn't afford a senior crew. So I just gave everyone a, a leg up. So I would get someone mm. the next job down. So I was just ringing people. You know, I rang my friend from EastEnders, who's a art director, and said, do you want to come and be the set designer? And everyone had a go at the next job up. So it was a real sense of like everyone loving what they were doing. And like I say, this slightly kind of anarchy feeling. But no, I had no idea it would take off. And actually, the first season didn't take off, you know. First series went by kind of almost unnoticed. And then the second series, because we were so cheap, the BBC commissioned, I think it was a random number of episodes. I think it ended up being 26, I think. So it ran for so long, it started to have a snowball effect and it picked up an audience. Mm -hmm. And that's when it started to get really good was was in the second series, really big was in the second series. And then they showed the first series again and it all kind of went crazy. You didn't think about doing a midlife version of it, a kind of sex in the city because no. I don't know how I feel about Sex and the City just like Reunion, that coming back yeah. I don't know how yeah. I feel about it how Leave what would you think it about is. this life mm. it's hard isn't it because you I think everyone leaves with different perceptions in their head of what they think the characters might do and you can almost spoil it for them by yeah. pointing them in a certain direction my and also it was such a thing about youth finding your way in the world there's something hopeful yeah hopeful and energetic and you know just the idea that these characters could go anywhere I feel like it's a shame to actually put them somewhere mm-hmm. if you know what I mean mm-hmm. I like to leave them with that potential that anything good or bad could happen to them so I think the answer is probably no to that and if we stick with the past when Trish and I were doing some research for the show Jane we found a picture of you and Ricky from what would have been a this life type time I think he might be wearing eyeliner yeah. mm. but you got loads of curly hair Oh, God, yeah. You look oh, completely God. different. Where did the oh. curly hair go? That's so it's... unfair. I love curly hair. No, 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 it's there. It's straightened oh. within an inch of its life. Yeah, yeah, Why? yeah. Why? Why have yes. you straightened that? Because, do you know what? I was, I, for a brief time in the 1970s and 80s, I was so on trend with my big old curly hair. <laughs> with oh, 80s, know. yeah. <laughs> yeah, huge. Everyone else was jealous. It was lovely. Obviously, it all went the other way. And then I started to think, as I got older, I thought, oh, my God, I look like Brian May. It's like, <laughs> it doesn't work. The big, And also because my hair's quite thin, quite fine. So it's not like beautiful curls. It's, it's not like Nadia Swala, beautiful curls. It's like a big old mess. So, yeah, this is it. But it's it's flattened, burnt to death. It's burnt to death and paired yeah. back today. But it's very it? chic, very sort of mm, slick back in a bun. It's very, yeah. very chic indeed. Yeah. We like the look. But staying back in the 80s, because I, I met my husband in the 80s. You you guys met in the 80s. Neil. Poor Neil. Oh, poor Neil. Poor Neil. Poor Neil. Things stuck with me for nearly 40 years. But it's it's quite an incredible thing, isn't it? I mean, I've got, I had the rockabilly quiff. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. You had the big cars. Yeah. I had the, the rockabilly quiff uh, going on at that time. Very and nice. I mean, it's funny when you meet that young, you're kind of growing up together, aren't you? And you yeah. share so much history. And it, it, it's sort of like we've been together forever, but then everything is still quite fresh and new. And obviously, I realise I'm in a very lucky position to feel mm-hmm. like that in my relationship. But obviously, there were a lot of ups and downs along the way. I mean, what do you remember about those those early days back in the 1980s? Do you know what? I think the thing that stands out most to me, because we, we were really seriously broke for years, mm-hmm. 
we lived, I've talked about this often before, but we lived in a bedsit above a brothel in King's Cross and it was just the most God awful place. I was earning, I think, £40 a week my first job and Ricky was either not working or doing bits of cleaning or whatever. And uh, it was a terrible bedsit. It had no heating and the meter had been rigged. So we couldn't even put a coin in the meter and plug a fire in. So we had icicles on the inside, everything. We slept in a single bed and you could touch the cooker and the, you know, a little two ring thing and the fridge from the bed. Horrendous. But I have a real sense of we were in it together. Mm -hmm. There was a real like you and me against the world and we're going to get through this. And I was always very ambitious, not to be like hugely powerful, just to be successful. I knew I wanted to be successful at something. So I was like plodding away on the bottom rung of a ladder. Yeah, it just felt like we were a little team. And I have really fond memories of that time, actually, for exactly that reason. You know, Mm -hmm. we did everything together. We would scour the supermarkets for the money off things and... It always seemed to be winter. We lived there for years, but it always seemed to be winter. And um, because they'd rigged the meter, it was cheaper to go to the pub and buy one pint than it was to plug the an electric fire in for an hour. So we would go to the pub every night with our 50p and we got sort of adopted by this pub in King's Cross where they were all kind of, it was a bit like something out of these enders actually. And uh, they sort of adopted, I don't know why, these sort of two little <laughs> romantic-y, gothy looking things. And they just took us under their wing. And so we would go there with our 50p and they would buy us drinks all night. And so we'd sit there every no. night and chat with them. And <laughs> yeah. obviously it feels like a, another world, but um, but there was def- a definite sense of we're in this together and yeah. we're going to get work our way out of this. And I think we, we were as happy, when I think back to those times, we were as happy then with nothing mm-hmm. as we are now with what yeah. we have got in the world. We we actually got banned from the Pizza Hut in Brighton because we, we used to go and it had an all-you-can-eat salad bar. And Neil's quite <laughs> sort of good at engineering. And he managed to engineer, he put cucumber up the sides and fill the thing up. And so we actually got banned for taking too much salad. <laughs> oh, no, that's salad. such genius work, though. And now, bad. Trish, you'd never go near a salad bar, would you? Because you have the hygiene, <laughs> worry about the hygiene oh, yes. situation, no, no. people sneezing people on it. Oh, yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. oh. yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting what you were saying about wanting to be successful. And that's that's another thing when you're you're in a, a young couple is that, you know, your, your success comes at different times, doesn't it? And, mm-hmm. you know, again, with Neil, he was very successful first in sort of music photography before I got into editing. And it's that was quite difficult, the ups and downs. But again, and then when his career sort of took a slide and went in a different direction, mine was going up. So how do you guys negotiate that? Because you're both very successful. Yeah, I think the difference between us was that I was always, as I say, very ambitious and and Ricky just wasn't at that point. He'd sort of given up the idea of, you know, being a pop star and didn't know, hadn't have a clue what he wanted to do. So we never felt like we were in competition, I think. So it was, I think me suddenly doing well was just a bonus really because it you know meant that we kind of earned some money and it gave him time to try and work out what he wanted to do and then there was a period when I after I'd had my first job working at an agency I decided I wanted to get into scripts and so I I left and became a freelance script reader which is you know pays absolutely nothing and you're basically you you accept work from wherever you can get so I was trailing around from theatre to theatre to tv company but working at home so that was kind of weird so I was still sort of working towards my career, but I was actually working in our grubby old bedsit, which again was kind of quite nice. Like now that would drive me mad, mm-hmm. but um, but it was kind of quite nice. So it never, we definitely never felt like we were in competition. I think maybe if you both want to be performers or you both want to be yeah. producers or whatever, then maybe there's an element of competition in it. And then when his career took off, I think it was so out of the blue for a start. But I also think that because of my experience by then in TV, that really helped. I think if you don't know the world of TV, you think it's really glamorous. And I think if you've worked in it, you know, it's just a load of people working really hard, really long hours. It's not glamorous at all. So I didn't feel like he was entering this sort of amazing, glamorous, mythical world. He was just working in an area that I kind of knew quite well. So I think that was quite good. Otherwise, I think it might have been a bit overwhelming for me, him suddenly going in, you know, on screen and all of that. But when you got to 45... You had this kind of epiphany, didn't you, which you've talked about before. Your whole life changed. You, the novel that was in you had to come out at some point. You'd wanted to write it since you were little. You wanted to be a writer since you were little. But you also were going through the menopause, well, the perimenopause at that time. We always ask our guests about that experience. Mm. What was that like for you at that time? And how did it affect all those areas of your life? Well, that was very early days for me, menopause-wise. So it's only in retrospect, I think, that I realised that I was must have been perimenopausal. And I think some kind of hormonal rush gave me the bravado to 
actually say You got the bravado and I got the rage. <laughs> I'll got the rage later. Oh, don't worry. The rage later. <laughs> but gave me the bravado to say that I was going to, it sounds much braver than it is, I was going to leave work for a year and actually try and write the book that I wanted to write. I was actually freelance, so, you know, I could have mm. gone back to work if I didn't have to. But uh, yeah, it just came out of nowhere. It was really weird. I just thought it's now or never, I'm going to do it. And I told everyone I was going to do it, which I'd never told anyone. I'd started a million terrible novels before and I'd never told anyone my ambitions at all. And I thought, no, I'm going to do it. So I definitely think that was menopause related. I've spoken to some other women and they're like, yeah, I got a really weird kind of brave thing going on. Mm. So that was okay. And then it was a few years later, I think I was about, probably when I was about 49, when the whole thing really kicked off. And uh, even now, only what, 12 or so years later, 13 years later, we know so much more, I think, than we did then. For some reason, I thought it lasts about two years. I had this in my head. (laughs) God almighty, I wish 13, 14 years later, someone had explained to me it would still be going. And I thought, I'm just going to, I'm just going to get through it. I'm going to keep quiet about it. I'm not going to talk about it. And I'm just going to get through it anyway. I sweated. I started sweating and I sweated for two years, nonstop. And I was still trying to be all brave and think, I'll just get through it. It must be nearly over. (laughs) It's fine. And then the rage came and I thought, oh, blimey, I don't want to be this person. And a cry at the crying. I had about a week of the crying and the rage. And I thought, okay, now I have to actually go and see someone and get something done about it. So that's when I went. Things have been much better since. But um, yeah. So you had older sisters. They didn't talk about it. No, I think it must be like the childbirth thing that everyone forgets how awful it was. Mm -hmm. The age gap between us is so big, I guess. But then I should have been aware of them going through it. No, we never talked about it. My mum, I would ask my mum because, you know, you think maybe you can anticipate it around the same age as your mum would. She literally couldn't remember when it had been, how it had been. So no, I got no advice from anyone at all. But you're okay now. You've, got, you've come through the other side. What, you're 61 now, are you? Uh, 62, I think. 62, yeah, 62. yeah. I am okay, but I'm also still on HRT. Yeah. And I can't quite imagine coming off it. I mean, no. I think if I came off it, I wouldn't be okay. But yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. With that, with the HRT, I'm not having any of the craziness that I was having and I haven't had the sweats for a long time, which is good because they really were unpleasant. Debilitating. Yeah. Yeah. So in your 60s, brilliant decade to be in, first question, did you have a party? Are you the sort of person who has parties for big numbers? And what are you looking forward to about being in your 60s? Uh, so no, I'm not the sort of person that has any kind of parties. But I did think... <laughs> sound I like us. I am not going out and I will not be there. Yeah, I'm in my pyjamas. Go away. Um, but I did think, I thought, I'm going to have a party for my 60th. I decided. And we'd actually kind of got, we were just going to have people around. We weren't going to have a great big do. We were going to have people over, blah, blah. Anyway, then there was a second wave of, wave of COVID and everything was cancelled. Oh, yeah. So I just thought, oh, well, there you go. That's me trying to have a party. It's not going to work. Um, so no, no parties. In fact... On my 60th birthday, we were it was just the two of us because it was covid and also because we just like it just being the two of us. So we were sitting on the sofa. Ricky got me a cake. So we had this big cake sitting there in front of us. I was in my pyjamas. We were watching some show on TV, big glass of wine. And the doorbell rang and it was the police. It was about 10 o'clock at night. It was the police and they said, uh, oh, there's been a burglary over the back. And I was like, okay. So they said, can we come in and go out in your garden and have a look around? So I was like, yeah, fine. So they, they did all of that and they looked around. And they came back in and he said, I've just got to take your details in case we need to contact you later. So he said, and he said, and when's your date of birth? And I had to go, oh, it's my birthday today. <laughs> and I just thought this looks so sad. Just two middle-aged people and a giant cake and a glass of wine and a muted you, you didn't think they were like going to take all their clothes off and oh, dance God, no, music no. or anything like that? <laughs> oh, God, no, I'd have punched them both in the face and run away. <laughs> <laughs> So you're not you're not a goey outy flashy kind of go to the BAFTAs get my hair done. I mean, would you care if you ever went to any of those things again? No, I mean the truth is I wouldn't. I have to say that I grew to enjoy the being tarted up bit. Yeah. First of all, it really intimidated me, and then I thought actually it's really nice someone making you look like you know the nicest version of yourself you can look on this given day and wearing a pretty dress and everything. But the truth is they're quite boring, and when you've been to one, you've been to them all. So mm. no, I wouldn't really care if I never went to another one. I don't think. Well, we feel the same. <laughs> well, we don't get invited. Fashion shows for us, we're like, yeah, been there, done that. For yeah, sure. sure. Well, I get invited, Trish. I just don't tell you about it. Oh. Just keep it a secret. I say, take you. your Oscar invite away. I will be watching the telly. 
Now, we do, of course, have to talk about Pickle, the cat. We do. One of you hates hates cats. Well, exactly. So we have a cat. Well, I have a cat called Margot, who is our resident pod cat. She makes quite a lot of My nemesis. Because Pickle has her own Instagram account, in which she's described as a cat of indeterminate weight, entrepreneur and bankrupt. (laughs) She (laughs) is. You also dedicate Just Got Real to the wonderful people at Feline Friends who rescued your beautiful Pickle. I mean, that's adorable. So I think you need to, because I've tried and failed, but you need to convince Lorraine what, why she should love pussycats like Can I just put some context in here? I grew up in a house... Tight, very small bungalow on the edge of Bodmin Moors where my parents rescued animals. So it was a kind of menagerie of slightly broken, quite odd animals, you see. So you're going, ah, you didn't have to grow up with that whole open your bedroom door and find 5,000 cats and dogs and things in there. And guinea pigs, which is a whole other story. Anyway, so that's the context. I am not liking of the cats. But the cats, they are liking of me, aren't they, Trish? She got they, in my handbag, like Margot, I think she? Pickle would oh. like you. Tell I us about Pickle. So Pickle is you couldn't not like Pickle. I'm not having it. So basically she came to us as a foster. Uh, I say that in kind of inverted commas because it was my stealth way of trying to get another cat in the house (laughs) after our previous cat died. I was like, well, foster, how can you argue with that? Anyway, two days after she arrived, we decided to keep her. But she came from, you know, the horrendous circumstances, basically cruelty, neglect, malnutrition, everything. Since day one, she's been with us two and a half years. She is the sweetest thing. She's never scratched either of us. She's never bitten anyone. She's never in anything other than a really happy mood. She's just a little sweetheart. All the cats we've had actually have been affectionate, but she is she is ridiculous. And she's just a big, sweet blob, really. Before I let you go, though, Jane, I am going to have to ask you to give me a secret. Now, you, you can answer this or not answer this. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. It's a dream I have something you can do, uh, but I need to t- need you to t- talk me through exactly how to do this. I-, I need to be able to do a cartwheel. Ooh, hello. Yes. And what happens is I go down and then it all just, fo- everything just follows me to the floor. <laughs> right. Okay, you might be approaching I this. feel like if I can do a cartwheel at 54, nearly 55, then there is hope for me to, because you're super fit, aren't you? You do, you have a trainer twice a week. You, you exercise, you do yoga, you do running. Yeah, I enjoy it. You so. look amazingly fit, just looking at you here. So the cartwheel. So I did lots of gymnastics when I was a kid. Loved gymnastics. And then when I was about in my early 40s somewhere, I did like you. I try, I was in the garden. I thought, I'm going to try a cartwheel. I hadn't done one for yeah. years. Just a big heap on the floor. And I thought, this is no good. I'm getting old. I can't, I'm too young to be getting old. So I decided I was going to find a way. And that's why I started yoga. Um, because I thought I need to get some strength back. I didn't have the strength in my arms, I felt like. So you need to do something like yoga to get your strength up in your arms because you need to feel confident that when you throw yourself up there, you're not going to collapse. I do that. I do the yoga. Okay. When you say throw yourself up there, what's that? <laughs> Throw. Mm. There's a routine, isn't there? Don't you have to do a hand and a foot and yeah. a leg? And it's not yeah, what, what you, you think, do. is it? Start by doing a very low one, a very low plane. So put one hand down and then throw both legs up and put the other hand down. But your legs won't go very far. Your legs all just won't go far off the ground. But you need to do that. And then meanwhile, you need to be doing things like press-ups and things like, if you can, a handstand against a wall and stuff just to get your shoulders strong enough. And Ricky do a cartwheel? No. No. (laughs) No, it's my skill. My daughter calls them fart wheels. (laughs) You're just a big old windbag, Trish, as we discovered in the show last week, didn't we? Well, exactly. There may have been some lemonade drunk before doing one. But anyway, (laughs) let's not go there. Right, book club, let's bring it back to that. Final question, Jane. Uh, What is on your bedside table right now and who's your favourite author? Uh, Gosh, what is on my bedside table right now is actually, I can't remember what it's called, but the Rob Rinder has written a book. Um, And I just started that a couple of nights ago, really enjoying it. Is it called The Trial? Uh, someone sent me the proof. And then on my phone, because I read a lot of books on my phone, I'm reading the new Claire Allen, who I love, called In the Dark, which is really good. Favourite author? There are a few authors. I don't really have a favourite, favourite author, but there are a few people who I'll just buy their books when they come out, regardless of knowing anything about them. Which And I love the domestic noir stuff. So sort of Lisa Jules and the Louise Candlish and Erin Kelly and Claire McIntosh and Ruth Ware, all those people who write the sort of Crimey. So I don't really read in my own genre a lot. When I do, I love Lindsay Kelk. I love Millie Johnson, who is, writes really kind of feel good, but with a bit of bite books. Yeah, but I do. T- I read a lot of crime. I like reading crime. Mm. Brilliant. That's a good list for everyone, isn't it, Trish? It is indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. 
been a pleasure. Lovely to hear you reading from your book as well, Just Got Real. And we've actually got a copy to give away to one of our Facebook group members. So pop on over there and you could win one of Jane's books. Lovely. Here we are. We've reached Nostalgia Noodle. The look back in time bit of the programme. What have you got, Trish? What have you got? Well, this is reminding us of our age, but I think in a good in a good way, I think. I'm seeing it as a positive thing. It's a never have I ever yes. retro edition where you have to give yourself one point for everything you've never done. But this list right. is things like used a rotary phone, used a typewriter, yeah. listened to music on a CD, oh. accessed the internet by dial-up, Used paper map to get somewhere. You see where I'm going with all of this. Well, if we played it as the drinking game where you, yes. you have to drink <gasps> if you have done those no. things, we'd be absolutely paralytic by now, wouldn't we? be face down on the floor. Yes, we apps already, just with those. Already. With those, yeah. exactly. It was funny. I was um, talking to a young chap, 15-year-old, the other day, and I, I don't know why I mentioned a checkbook. It came up in some conversation. He had no clue <laughs> what a check was. And I think it's interesting because my kids who are 19 would know what a check is but mm. in the space of three years something like that can just become completely obsolete it's funny isn't it well it, it is strange somebody today uh, on twitter suggested that i put some newspaper in mabel's football boots to dry them off and i oh yes i had to say we don't have any newspaper in the house anymore it doesn't <laughs> no. exist anymore it's not a thing no you can't stuff your ipad in there to dry them up so trish never have i ever bought sweets in a paper bag do you remember that yes Yes. Oh, pick and mix. Oh, no, they still do pick and mix in the cinema. Read The Joy of Sex. Do you remember that? Yes. Everyone read The Joy of Sex in the 80s. It was brought to school by accident, wasn't it? I wonder what their never evers will be. I, do, I can't, I just don't even want to think. Don't it's think too, about too it. Too grim. No. There we are. We've reached the end of our book club special. Thank you, everybody, for listening, for getting this far into the show. Hope you enjoyed it. You know where to find us. They know where to find us, don't they, Lorraine? Facebook group. Postcards from Midlife Live, email, email us, hello at postcardsfrommidlife.co.uk. Yeah, all the ways to connect that aren't, don't involve dialing up the internet or sending a fax. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.